The Gospel reading from Matthew 7, 13 through 29. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the, ones, only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm humbled by uh, Brian's uh, willingness to share the pulpit with me, but it may, he may think about it differently later. <clears throat> and I'm thankful that you uh, showed up today, especially since you heard that I was preaching. So that's <laughs> nice. In 1989, uh, I think it was Hurricane uh, Hugo. Yes, I've got it right. Hurricane Hugo. Uh, crashed against uh, the East Coast, Dade County, Florida. And uh, uh, there's a, a photo, a famous photograph that shows a housing development where every house in the development was just absolutely flattened and six were not. Six had lost a few shingles. In 1992, Hurricane Andrew hit. Same thing, 22 more houses standing in subdivisions where every other house was flattened. So someone got curious, and they wanted to know, what is it about those houses? And they wanted to know who built those houses and who was living in them. And it turns out it was who? Habitat for Humanity. And when they asked the director of Habitat for Humanity why those houses stood, he says, well, there are three reasons. He says, one, we build the houses for the people who live in them, not for profit. Second, we follow all the rules. We follow the code. There are hurricane straps that run from the, the roof joist to the foundation. If the hurricane wants to lift the roof off that house, it has to uproot it from the ground. 
Third, we use volunteers who believe that if one nail is good, six nails are better. <laughs> Contrast that with the Millennium Project, the Millennium Tower Project in San Francisco. You familiar with this? Built, finished in 2008. It began sinking immediately. It's in the prestigious 301 Mission District in San Francisco. In 2017, it had sunk 17 inches on one side. It lists 14 inches at the top. The last apartment in that building, a one-bedroom apartment, was sold for $2 million. The penthouse sold for, I can't remember how many multiples of tens of millions of dollars it was. Now, Donna and I live in a very marvelous little house in Kenton, in North Portland. And uh, some years ago, uh, before our neighbor Elsie died, I got curious because our house has a broken foundation. One of the corners is kind of pushed out a little bit. On the inside of the house, the foundation is right, but the outside, it's wrong. And our house tips to one side. Come visit us. You drop a marble in the kitchen. It rolls out the kitchen through the living room, makes a lap there, goes down the hall, and hides behind the toilet in the bathroom. It's a strange little house. I ask Elsie, my next-door neighbor. She's lived there. That's only the second house she ever lived in. She died a few years ago. But I ask her, Elsie, what happened to my house? And she saw that happened a, a, a few years back. And I said, when? She says, let me think. 1958. The Millennium Tower project was a new design. All the other towers around it drove concrete pilings to the bedrock. But the Millennium Tower project, they drove it only partway down and then poured what was supposed to be a stabilizing platform of concrete, a false bedrock, underneath all of those pilings. Two other projects had been refused that wanted to do that because the peer review of engineers and architects said that was not stable. But this project didn't get a peer review, and all but one of the county uh, planning commission voted in favor of it. It's probably going to have to come down. 58 stories, 645 feet high. Our story today... What we're looking at today is about two builders, actually about two hearers. They live in Palestine. They're not going to build a Millennium Tower. They're not even going to build a house as big as mine. Mine is a modest size house. It's going to be something that has about seven-foot-high walls, going to be two rooms, maybe a little rooftop patio. It's going to be pretty modest. And yet... They're not going to be able to build this in the wintertime when it's raining. They're going to build this in the summertime. And the, and the soil there in Palestine is a kind of mixed clay soil. And the book of Leviticus tells us that in the summer sun, the ground turns to bronze. Imagine what's going on now. There's a builder. He's saying, well, the house is only seven feet high. There's not a lot to this. You know, there's bedrock down there someplace. I can do this. Little shortcut. Builds the house out of field stones using mud and wattle for for, uh, mortar. 
kind of stuccos with mud, the outside of it. We see this construction all through Central America and Africa still, still in the Mideast. And then the rains come. It's an early winter, and it's like 1996 here in Portland. It begins, and it just doesn't stop. The rain just keeps coming. And pretty soon, the, the street turns into something that looks like chocolate pudding. And there's a little bulge in the wall as one of those fieldstones begins to move. And pretty soon, that bulge becomes a big bulge, and then it collapses. So Jesus is using uh, an image that is very uh, familiar with people in this area. They will know people who both built a, a house that had a foundation that went to the bedrock. They will know how hard that is to do, and they will know people who took shortcuts and whose houses fell down. But the problem we face this morning is that we have relegated this story to the realm of a children's story. It's very much like the three little pigs, isn't it? Is the moral of the story is that we're to be wise little pigs and use a lot of wisdom in our building and escape the huffing and puffing of the wolf? Well, I don't think so. And we need to move it beyond the realm of a children's story into the realm where Jesus intended it. We're going to see how this happens in just a moment. Let's pray as we begin. Our God in heaven... Your servant this morning wants to be accurate and truthful in dividing the word and is a little rusty. We pray that your spirit would move in our midst, um, guiding our little um, examination of this passage together. Both hearers and speaker, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I think if we look at this, and uh, you can look in your uh, order of worship as we read this, we're going to come down to verse 24. And the clue to how to untangle this, how to move this back from the realm of being a children's story into the realm where Jesus intended it, is this very first word in, uh, in our passage, and that is the word, therefore. Therefore is an indicator that this is tied, whatever Jesus is about to say, is tied to everything that has gone on before, or at least something that has gone on before. The previous statement, previous series of stories, something. We actually have three contexts, possibly four. We're going to look at the larger context, not the, not the two ones further out. We're going to look at the larger context, the more immediate context, and then we're going to explore the text itself. So the larger context is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount itself. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, and if you look at the passage in Luke chapter 6, it is clearer, but it is also clear here that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is set aside, uh, is, uh, is pictured as a Moses figure. Let me walk you through how Luke does it. Luke has Jesus on the mountain at night, praying all night long. It's he and, he and God together. Jesus is alone with God. He comes down off the mountain, and here are a, a host of followers here. Out of the followers, he chooses 12. He calls those 12 forward, and he, and he puts uh, them in a special position. They're going to become his apostles. He calls them his intimate friends, his disciples at this point. 
And then he brings to them the new law. And this is to the 12. The others are listening in, but he's speaking primarily to the 12 in Luke chapter 6. And then at the end of that new law that he gives, that is known as the Sermon on the Plain, a shorter version of what we find here in Matthew, which is the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of that, like uh, when Israel had received the law, half stood on one mountain, half on the other, and they shouted across the valley the promises and curses of the law. And Jesus lays before the people in Luke chapter 6 the curse and the promise of the law. That's the story. The wise builder. Here in Matthew, the same thing is in play, but we see it done differently. Again and again, Jesus sets himself up not as an interpreter of the law, but as a giver of the law. He says, and we hear this refrain over and over, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. He's the giver of the law, number one. That's the first claim that we see from Jesus in this passage. That's part of our context. He is the giver of the law. He's not the interpreter of the law. He's not giving us a a, a moral or ethical code. He's giving us the law, the new law. As the giver of the law, he begins by defining the character of citizens of the kingdom. We know this is the Beatitudes. And not only does he define the character of the citizens of the, of the kingdom, he, he tells us this is who they are like, this is what they are like, but this is what their challenges are going to be. They're going to face persecution. They're going to face rejection. They're going to be reviled and persecuted, he says. But he says they're going to be people of influence, so much influence that their very presence... Their very presence, just the fact that they exist in the world, keeps it from going into utter decay and darkness. He establishes this, you are a special people. Again, this is God speaking to the children of Israel. You are the new Israel. And then he goes on, and and you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, Brian took us through this. He goes on and he talks about what true righteousness is. And he talks about true righteousness in terms of marriage and uh, our speech and uh, a variety of other things. And then he talks to us about true worship. And he talks about almsgiving. And he talks about fasting and prayer. And then he moves into a variety of uh, moral statements Uh, offers an array of ethical obligations that are the implications of what he's just been giving. And then we come to a list of admonitions, which is what we're looking at now, the blessings and curses. The blessings and curses. Jesus claims to be the law giver. That's the large context. Now, this becomes important in just a few moments, when we get right into the text again, the, the story itself, we'll see how important this is. The next context is this smaller context, and it's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And that begins, and I've had it 
the whole thing put in your bulletin this morning. And that starts in verse 13. Now, this is an interesting construction. There are two stories that are very similar that involve a choice. The narrow way, the broad way. Digging deep to the foundation or building on sand. Choices. In the middle are two warnings. One about uh, false profession or uh, deception, uh, the deceptive profession, and the other about self-deception. False knowledge or speech, false theology, and false profession. It folds kind of in the middle. So we have then a choice, two warnings, a choice. It's parallel construction. Very interesting, very well known in Jesus' day, very much the kind of teaching that any teacher of his day would do. But I want to point out something that we miss when we come to this story at the end. All of these involve something very dark. Verse 13, look at this. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Jump down to verse 19, talking about the false prophets. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jump down to verse 23, talking about this false profession or self-deception. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. That word declare is a public declaration. I will stand before all others and say, I don't know you. Now, we come one more time, then we're going to loop back to that 23rd verse in just a second. Verse 27 The house built on the sand, great is its fall. All the way through this, judgment, 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 judgment. But the punchline is that verse we read in 23. When Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I am the law giver, not the law interpreter, I am the law giver, here he says, Read it carefully. I am the judge. Now, take it another step. Very bold claim of Jesus. I'm not only giving the law, I'm the judge. These are difficult statements. I want to point out something else then about that self-deception that struck me, again, hard this week as I was reading it. Do you see what these people did? I mean, they did some really particularly good things. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They performed miracles. Holy Toledo. (laughs) And they're not getting in. He says they were evildoers. Oh, what on earth are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus. Well, go back and look at the Sermon on the Mount, and you will see that he never once tells us about how to prophesy right, how to cast out demons, or how to do miracles. He talks to us about how to love 
our enemies. How to be in a correct relationship, a loving relationship. How to stand up for the oppressed. How to be willing to be fanatical for the cause of Christ. Remember, he says in, in, the, in the Beatitudes, he says these are people who hunger and thirst. They are, they are dying of thirst. They are starving for righteousness. Soren Kierkegaard, looking at that phrase, the purity of heart, says purity of heart is to will one thing. What he means is that the pure in heart are ones that have only one thing on their mind, and that is to do the will of God. It's not about prophesying. It's not about casting out demons. It's not about miracles. It's it's a a very simple theology that we were talking about earlier. God loves the world. It's a syllogism. God loves all the world, all the people, everywhere, all the time. Major premise, minor premise. God wants me to be like him. Conclusion, therefore, I am to love all people, all people, everywhere, all the time. Doesn't mean I lack discernment. Wow, I'm just captivated by this. Now, with this, we can turn our attention to the seriousness of these two builders. Let's just kind of walk through the text a little bit, can we? I'm sure I've got some other notes here that I missed. Uh, disruption, casting fire. No. Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> oh, I'm going to start preaching out of chapter 8. Therefore, on the basis of all that's gone before, I am the lawgiver, I am the judge, therefore. Got it? Here we go. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them. Now, let let me stop there for just a moment. I I, I love Luke. I mean, he just goes right to it. He goes right to it. In fact, I think I've got that marked here. Yeah, Luke Luke 6.46. I love this. Jesus finishes the sermon. He says, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? (laughs) That's it. That that gets it in a nutshell. Did you notice the passage before that we read? Three times the people said, We did this in your name, in your name, in your name. Powerful statement. That is an emphatic statement in, in the Hebrew. That three times. And he's saying, it doesn't matter. Go back and read the book of Jeremiah. You'll hear this same refrain. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, Jeremiah says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, again, in Luke, Luke, uh, Matthew uses just a basic term for hearing. That is, that you hear. Luke uses a term that says, habitually hear. Oh, so now that phrase we just read makes a little bit more sense. How how can you who are habitual hearers of what I say not do what I say? So now, let's just be clear. Those of you who are 
kind of on the fence, struggling about your relationship with Jesus Christ, have not known whether or not yet you're ready to uh, throw your lot in with him, let me be clear that this passage is for us who, are, who have the hearers. So you can relax. Therefore, everyone who habitually hears these words of mine and acts upon them can be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Um, Wise man. There are two words, two basic words. Two basic words in the Greek for wisdom. The one, Sophia, that we're, uh, or uh, Sophos, that we're familiar with is the one we like to think about uh, as being spiritually wise, practical, a person who's well anchored, whose knowledge uh, uh, works out in uh, in practical ways. But the word Jesus uses here is a, a more interesting word to me. It's where we get our word frown. Frown. It means someone who thinks about things. Someone who Spends time pondering things, frowning. The prudent, sensible person who learns from experience. Therefore, everyone who habitually hears these words of mine and acts on them, who does what they hear, what they read, can be compared to a very prudent person, a thoughtful person, a person who worships God with their mind, who built this house on the rock, Petra. You know this word, cliff face. It's not boulders. It's not rocky ground. It's cliff face or or bedrock. It's solid surface, who built his house upon the rock. Luke says, uh, he doesn't use that same term, uh, uh, rock. He says, a person who dug deep for the foundation. I like that. When I was a kid, my dad got this wild idea. He bought a house uh, that was going to be torn down. And it was where the new junior high school was going to be built, and he got it for a buck, a dollar. And my dad was a truck driver, so he convinced two of his truck driver friends that they could jack the house up and tow it across the street. My dad bought uh, a piece of property that no one wanted. It was right next to the railroad track. And uh, he bought this piece of property, about three acres, for $300. So he figured for $301, he could move our family into a house. Sounded good to him. So my dad and his friends jacked this house up. And they went out there with their trucks. And they drug it across the street. And they set it there. And my dad was so proud because he moved it without cracking, without cracking the chimney. And then he dropped a plumb line at the corners, noted where the foundation would be, snapped some chalk line on the, on the ground, and the house is jacked up, and then turned to my two older brothers and says, uh, when I'm out on the truck, my dad was a long-haul trucker, he says, when I'm out on the truck, you're digging the foundation. I was too young, and my mother didn't want me under this house that was all jacked up in the air, you can imagine. And I used to watch them work and complain and grumble 
basic tools, sometimes having to use a trowel as they were getting at the bottom and putting the forms in. It's horrible work. And I was, of course, I was young, and I thought, why don't I get to do this? <laughs> Dug deep. Are you familiar with how the pyramids were built? The Egyptians raked the sand back, got down to the sandstone. They, uh, they figured out how to draw a square, a, a good square. Uh, they used the 3-4-5 rule uh, to draw the square. You may be familiar with that. I'm not going to go into it. If you don't know your math, go look it up someplace. Just look up 3-4-5 rule. And then they, they, they in essence, snap lines or scribe lines on the, the sandstone that were 18 inches apart, thereabouts, a cubit. 18 inches apart. And then they set the slaves to work who dug trenches that were about 18 inches deep and about 6 inches wide. A grid. All that was shoved aside. Then they changed the flow of the Nile long enough to flood where the pyramid was until that basin was completely flooded. And then they let it stand. Several days later, after it had evaporated a little bit under the Egyptian sun, early in the morning before the sun had fully risen, they sent the slaves back out again, and they scribed a line right at the water level. And then they cut it at that line and filled the trenches back in with what they cut off. And it made the foundation of the pyramid absolutely level absolutely square from corner to corner. Hard work. Hard work. It continues to endure. Remarkable stuff. But that's not all. The rain descended, verse 25, and the floods came, and the winds blew. This sounds more and more like the three little pigs. It just, it just is a, it's just this thing that's happening. It's a horrible thing of life, whatever it is. And all of this is coming and burst against that house. I love this word for burst. It is the violent uh, blow. It is a violent blow. <laughs> Oh, good. Burst against the house. A violent blow. Wind, rain, flood, slamming against the house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. Now, let's be clear here. What matters is the rock. It's not about the house, and it's not about the builder. It's the rock. Psalm 46. Been meditating on this part of this week. And for just a moment, let me read the first three verses and then a little verse toward the end. First three verses. This is the the psalm that, that struck Martin Luther And he wrote, marvelous hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Big destruction. Sounds very much like our passage. The psalm goes on for nine verses, extolling the wonders of God's strength. And then God speaks. Here's what he says. Cease striving. King James, be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Who gets the credit? It's the rock. The contrast, then, is between this wise hearer and, verse 26, the foolish hearer. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man. There are four choice words that uh, could have been used to translate what Jesus probably said in Aramaic. But there are four possible words for foolish that could be used. Uh, three of them mean uh, simply you don't have enough information or you lack understanding. Uh, uh, and maybe uh, there's some defect. But the fourth one is the one that is used here, and it means to be a moron. That's our word. That's the exact word in Greek. It's moron. You moron. <laughs> I began to wonder, what are the attributes of a foolish person? Here's something I jotted down. Maybe you've got some others. They're always in a hurry. They're impatient. I hated to write this one down because I'm impatient. I don't even want you to come to my house to see my attempts at building things. I'm so impatient. I take too many shortcuts. I think caulk is just wonderful stuff. Trim covers a multitude of sins. They rarely listen to the instructions. They don't think things through or consider the consequences. Homer Simpson. Okay. That's who we have. The foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And again we have... Burst against the house. Different word for burst. I don't know why the difference. I looked and looked. I tried to understand why one word would be used one place and one another. I'm sure that there was something going through Matthew's mind when he chose this word, but it didn't get to me. I don't know what it is. But it means to take offense and to strike someone. The house was struck. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, the house was struck, and the house fell, and great was its fall. And the word there for great was its fall is, means a stumbling, staggering fall. I think maybe that's the imagery. Someone who is struck and stumbles and staggers and falls. In your bulletin is Isaiah 28. Flip back to that, the Old Testament reading. Let's look at this. It's toward the middle and end. We're going to look at, excuse me, Isaiah 28, 14 to 17, just very quickly. And we're going to see the third claim of Christ. 
The first was he's the lawgiver. The second is he's the judge. And now we come to this Isaiah passage. Isaiah is railing at the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel. They have made a covenant, a mutual protection covenant with Egypt. And they believe that when when Syria attacks them, that Egypt will come to their defense. And and Isaiah says, "You're, you're mistaken. You're putting your confidence in the wrong place. Now, I want you to, in order to grasp this, you must understand. Remember what you know about Egypt. They worshipped the gods of the dead. Okay? So, here we see, verse 15, you boast we have entered into a covenant uh, with death, with the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. Read Egypt. Isaiah says, bad idea. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, does this sound like our passage? When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, or we have made our lie, uh, uh, made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Then, the good news. See, I have laid a stone in Zion. I love this attested stone. A precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Third claim of Christ. He is the Holy One of God. He is the cornerstone. He is the precious stone upon which we may depend. And in essence, he says, you would be a fool. You would be a fool not to act on that. I am the lawgiver. I am the judge. I am the sure cornerstone upon which you can depend. Everything else is false. Ooh. Here are my takeaways very quickly from this passage. Number one, storms reveal the nature of our foundation. I think there are several kinds of storms that we might face. This series of passages from 13 to here, if we read them correctly, if, we, if, I, if I'm correct about what I'm seeing, he's talking about the final judgment, the end. But he's also talking about other kinds of storms. The other kinds of storms that hit us, slam us hard, knock us down, send us staggering. Second, we have a choice. We can place our confidence in the sure foundation or we can try to take shortcuts. One is wise, one is foolish. Third, there is no neutrality. There is no neutrality. We all must choose. 
Fourth, discipleship is difficult work. We have to dig deep. I think here's where the problem is. We live in a time and a place where hard work in order to deepen our lives spiritually is just not what we do. We want to take shortcuts. I want to tell you, sometimes I feel like I haven't matured as a Christian, I've just grown older as a Christian. In some areas of my life, that's true. But in other areas of my life, it's not. I also want to tell you that there are many things in the Bible that I just don't get. I've struggled with, I've struggled with, I've struggled with, and I can't get there. I can't understand it. I can't grasp it. I, sometimes I feel so close. I love... When I was a kid, my dad had these glass records that were no grooves on one side, but grooves on the other. You maybe have never seen them, but I have. And in the middle was a gold label, and on that gold label was never the dog looking into a gramophone. A gramophone, a little wax cylinder, wind-up mechanics, a nail for a needle, No equalizer, no Dolby sound system, scratching, squawky, hissy noise. And what does the what does the label say? Nipper's looking in the gramophone and it says his master's voice. Somehow, in all of this squawky, scratchy, uh, difficult to understand uh, noise that's coming to me from the Bible, I hear the Master's voice. And it's here, it is here, where we have to dig deep. Let's pray. God in heaven, We are deeply moved by the words of Jesus. We can hear the people in Jesus' day shouting, oh, amen, amen, preach it, preach it, but then he comes to the end. And his claims are so heavy. We find ourselves in this difficult place where his law is both less burdensome. Your law, Jesus, is less burdensome and more difficult. Lead us, we pray. We want more than anything in our lives to dig deep. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.